listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. My guest today, when him and his brother came out with uh, their first album, which was actually was in 1990, they had great hair. And I saw them on Abducted by the 80s a few weeks ago, and they still have great hair. In 1990, I had great hair. Now I'm completely bald. I'm not saying I'm jealous, but things change. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, like my guest is, uh, I can't believe the album After the Rain is 30 years old. My guest is Matthew Nelson from the band Nelson. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good, man. It's good to have hair. That's all I can say. I know. <laughs> it, I sat there, I saw you guys, because you did that, the, the acoustic set at uh, Abducted in the uh, 80s. And yeah, I'm like, these guys still have their hair, and it still looks great. I mean, it... How does that feel? I'm sorry. How does it feel to have just have great hair? Have have great hair. Look, I, I'm gonna be really serious. I I wish that I had my father's hair. You know, my dad Ricky Nelson had like I, I used to laugh and say, "Man, that is like this impossible hair helmet you have there, Pop." I mean, it was this unbelievable <laughs> hair. I got I got my mom's genetics, which is not so bad. My mom uh, is a Harmon, Mark Harmon Gibbs from NCIS. That's my uncle. So I kind of more have that that Harmon hair. If I had Nelson here, I'd be really happy. But uh, I did okay with it. What? Now, you know, you mentioned your, your father was, you know, an amazing talent. Your grandfather was an amazing talent. Um, your grandmother was an amazing talent. Uh, your uncle's an amazing talent. What's it like growing up around that? Does it just feed your artistic creativity? Or how is that, how is that growing up in that kind of household? Well... They're blessings and curses. I mean, um, just like anything. The, the truth is, the best part about it was realizing that it was possible, you know, to achieve at a high level, you know, and I, I kind of was lucky in that respect. You know, when I grew up, to me, people were just people, and I didn't know the people that grew up, you know, in my household, you know, coming over to visit were, you know, Beatles and Beach Boys and, you know, Bob Dylan and things like that. I mean, they were just, you know, hippies. They were just people. And, um, my pop was kind of reforming his musical career with his Stone Canyon band, kind of a second phase. Um, but I was, you know, I arrived a little bit before that, right as that was emerging. And then a few years after that garden party hit. So I kind of was there for the second wave of that and really missed all of that teen idol stuff. But I think what was cool about it was I never, ever saw anybody have a celebrity moment. You know, I mean, we, Gunnar and I kind of still live by the same, you know, three rules we've kind of distilled it down into three rules of success. The first one is be undeniably good. The second one is don't lose your sense of humor. You know, don't take things too seriously or you'll cry. And, and the third, and it's very easy, is don't be a dick. So it's, I kind of learned that just, just by being around all these people, they achieved at that level. And I never saw my pop, you know, snipe at a reporter or say no to an autograph or whatever. He was just a genuinely nice human being who happened to be one of the most famous people in the world and I, my experience with all of that is that uh, yeah it's like when I met Paul McCartney he couldn't have been more affable and kinder and real and down to earth it's the people that are kind of new to that you know air quote fame and celebrity thing that you got to watch out for especially in this kind of world of you know social media and all of that kind of crap I mean people kind of being famous for nothing you know it's just you know, people that had to work at it, you kind of understand that they, through the struggle, usually they're, they're very secure in what it is they have to offer. So they don't really have to, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like almost a, an oxymoron. They don't have to peacock so much because they're, they're already whole within themselves. That's kind of what I learned. 
Now, when did you personally get interested in playing music? Was it because you saw your father or you just had an attraction to it? And was it maybe because you met all these musicians? When did you start playing? Well, I actually have photos of my brother and myself as toddlers, kind of like bashing around on, on the instruments in what used to be our nursery growing up uh, when our dad formed his Stone Canyon band. So they, I could honestly say Gunner and I, well, it was kind of cool that we were twins. You know, it's kind of having a mirror image of yourself. We always, you know, did stuff together. But, uh, I mean, we got our first real instruments when we were six. And um, I think it was more of a goof from our parents thought, oh, this is so cute. They want to play instruments. Gunner was a drummer at first. He's actually a world-class drummer. Nobody really knows that. But he played for about 18 years. And I started on the bass, ironically, because I was, was a big Paul McCartney fan as a kid. But I thought, oh, four strings, it's easier. And I had no idea until I really got into it that that's a whole, that's a completely <laughs> different language. And I'm glad I started on the bass, actually, and uh, became a singing bass player. We started playing clubs when we were uh, about 12 and uh, really young, and it was in the kind of late, uh, the late 70s, kind of Los Angeles, you know, post-punk new wave era, you know, all the bands with the the in front of their name, you know, the motels, the right. Mac, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> and so th that's really what we grew up with. I think it's ironic that it's probably because of long hair that people uh, now try to lump us into that whole poison warrant thing, and I think it's unfair. I mean, we kind of came out of that more... Uh, that new wave punk thing and we're more kind of heavy metal folkies you know we, there's more dna from the late 70s or sorry the late 60s southern california country rock thing that our dad was doing or linda ronstadt or the eagles really than any of that stuff uh Gunner and i were too busy in the studio but we had already done years in clubs so we really didn't feel like we needed to break out of the sunset strip and we didn't so uh, you know looking back on it now uh i think um you know, there's a lot to learn where I grew up. I was very fortunate, actually, to grow up in Southern California and be around music. But the irony also is that my father was gone a lot touring. He was really on the road uh, sometimes 300 days plus a year, just trying to make ends meet. When our parents got divorced, it was that accelerated. You know, I have to pay lawyers off. I know how that is. So um, he loved music, and he was a music guy. But um, I'm happy to say that millions of people bought our record having no idea who our dad was. Yeah, that's what's great, too. I mean, if, if you know, I'm, I'm 56, so I know, but a lot of people didn't know. And now, I got to ask you, you said you, when you were 12, you're, what, were you playing original music at 12, or when did you start playing original music? Oh, we were 12. Yeah, I mean, our, we're, this is how it worked. Gunnar and I learned how to play to records, to music. And I remember uh, all those records that we would go down and buy, you know, anything that we saw being played on Saturday Night Live because it's way before MTV or things like that and that was like a big deal you know I'm talking like you know 78 77 when it first launched if you saw it on there you bought it um, before that it was like I remember Queen News of the World was a big one for me and we would just sit down and, and, and try to play along to the records it made things became easier for me when I learned how to tune my bass about a year after starting to play it <laughs> but uh, you know I was like oh that's how you do it and Gunnar and I, uh, as a rhythm section, you know, when a lot of kids were blowing up mailboxes in our in our area and stuff, and this is right when skateboarding was just breaking out of Southern California, you know, when the, there was the pool droughts and stuff like that, and we would go and skateboard a little bit and then head out to the barn and grab our equipment and, and play for hours. And I think our parents were happy because it just kind of kept us out of the house, but uh, Gunnar and I never really played music 
because it was a hobby. We played music believing that one day that's what we were going to do. It's kind of like, I guess, growing up in a in an athletic family. Um, like my uncle, for instance, Uncle Mark, his dad won the Heisman Trophy at Michigan in 1940, so he was a big footballer. And uh, then he went into broadcasting, he went to media, and that's exactly what our uncle did. He played you know, college ball at UCLA, was first-string quarterback, did really well, and then decided to go into media after following our grandfather Ozzy on the other side of the family, you know, his father-in-law around the set. And, you know, it's worked out for him pretty well. So uh, I, I think it's like anything, you know, I just saw something yesterday and somebody was asking questions, you know, what's the best way of being successful? And a kid said, work hard, and it was the wrong answer. The, the, the answer is find somebody who does what you want to do uh, at that level and follow them around and learn from them, see what they do and do that. And that's really the truth. I mean, in, in my case, I got to say that was a, a blessing to see it. The irony there, though, is that our father never taught us a single chord on the guitar or anything like that. He just, I think he wanted to, and he told us this, he wanted us to, to do it for ourselves. You know, I come to him with a song idea. I remember I was 11 writing my first song and and I said, uh, what do you think, Pop? And I was expecting this, you know, hey, you do great. And he just kind of looked, he nodded and stuff. And he said, it's good. Just keep doing what you're doing and believe in what you're doing, but keep doing it. You know, he knew that we would get better with time. And if we gave it up, it was honestly meant to be that way, too. I mean, this is stuff you got to fight for. Um, I don't care what you what you do, but music especially, just looking back on my career that goes back, you know, before I got paid, you know, years but it, you got to fight for it. You got to want it so bad. It's like God wants to know you're serious about this because you're going to get tested all the time. And uh, that's been my experience with it. Now, with your songwriting, because, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of, you know, great songwriting duos. You know, uh, Andrew Ferris, I talked to him in excess. We talked about how him and Michael Hutchins wrote together and uh, Chris Stifford, how him and Tilbrook wrote together. When you and your brother wrote together, was there more of a connection because you're twins? Because everyone say twins think what the other person's thinking. Did that affect your songwriting process? Good question. I think absolutely. I think it was a, a, a complete plus on that one. I mean, going back to, uh, you know, Gunnar and I still write and play together. You know, I mean, that's what we do. Gunnar writes his own songs at times. I write my own songs. I have my own projects on the side, all that kind of stuff. But when we write together, it's amazing to me that, some of the best stuff that we've ever done just happens. Now, there's there's really a, con a you know a connection there. By the way, I, I got a chance to fly with Michael Hutchins from uh, Hong Kong to Los Angeles and and had the most amazing discussion with him the entire time. He was the kindest guy ever. I really miss that guy. It's it's great that you mentioned him. Um, he was a great one. But Gunnar and I, when we uh, we write, it's kind of like okay, the song Love and Affection, for instance, going back on point. I was uh, had a guitar in my hand, uh, just uh, I capoed it up and just kind of picking around to it. And I was zoning out, and I started playing this little lick, you know. And again, this is Gunner and I kind of did it all the time. I remember that day our friends were all calling us up from their landlines, no cell phones back then, and saying, "Hey, man, we're gonna hit the beach. It's hot as hell. Let's just get down there and have some fun and stuff." And, and Gunner and I, you know, we'd made our commitment. We said, "Guys, sorry, but we." We got to do this every day. We got to do this and have a great time. And, and man, trust me, that was hard. I remember we're in this room and we've got our guitars and my dog had gas and everybody's at the beach and it was, you know, you know, setting the tone. And I started playing this, this piece and 
Gunner runs in from the other room. He says, what the hell was that? I said, I have, I have no idea. What are you talking about? He said, that thing you were playing. That thing you were playing. I said, well, I don't know what thing you're talking about. And fortunately, he held up a micro cassette recorder, if you remember micro cassette. Oh, yeah. And he said, this, this, and he played it back. He was in the other room kind of recording it. And it was the lick for, for Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. And so it really helped having a, a guy there, you know, that's kind of like a folky kind of thing. Right. So and, you just, uh, you just sat down and you played, how much of it did you play? Just that lick? Yeah. Just got, I guess among other things, but yeah, just that, that lick did it. And sometimes that's all it really takes, you know? Um, and again, everybody has a different process. Uh, Gunnar and I though, as songwriters, you know, we really, uh, we kind of did it. We did it backwards, which which a lot of people do, in the sense that we we learned how to play our instruments. We learned how to get in front of crowds that weren't ours and win them over. Because you got to figure when you have to get escorted into clubs in Southern California because you're too young to actually be in the club, <laughs> but because you know you have people advocate. There was a booking agent at like I remember Madame Wong's West, which was one of the hottest places to play that advocated for us to be able to pass a local, you know, they passed a local ordinance that we could be brought into the club as musicians and had to be escorted immediately out of the club so they didn't lose their liquor license. But we played for people that were over 21. That's where we started. Um, it worked out, too. I mean, I recently ran into the, the Foo Fighters. I'm friends with one of the guys in the band, and we were backstage, and Pat Smear walked up to me, and uh, he, he had that that smile on his face. He said, Hey, I'm Pat Smith. I said, I know who you are, Pat. He said, I was in a band called the germs. And I said, I know you were, man. I was a big fan, you know? And, uh, he said, yeah, I just wanted to let you know, you and your brother were, I think 12 or 13. And you were playing at Walker's Chinatown, which was the new wave club. And we were across the street with the germs at Hong Kong cafe. I just wanted you to know that the germs wanted to be at your show so bad but we weren't allowed to because of the code of being a punk, and that really sucked. I really just want to let you know that I remembered you guys playing across. I was like, man, Pat Smear knew my high school band, The Strange Agents. I had just arrived, <laughs> you know? So it all worked out. But um, fun times kind of growing up in that, and, and uh, you know, things weren't exactly rosy for Gunnar and I at home. And our mom drank an awful lot. Our parents were divorced, and Gunnar and I basically stayed sane by keeping our eye on the prize. and playing our music and hoping that it was going to get better and it did now when did you get your first record deal because you know it's so funny because you're from the era where you know people were getting record deals people were getting screwed over in record deals too how did you go about getting your first record deal long story of it is that we started you know obviously in the clubs you know people we would invite people down and it just never worked out and um, I think it started to accelerate. I had just turned uh, 17. Actually, no, I was 18. And we started doing well in the clubs around L.A. and filling up. And there was a booking agent there that booked us on Saturday Night Live without a, a deal. And unfortunately, uh, three months later, our father died. And we decided to keep keep going and actually do the, the performance on SNL broke up the band on the way home because we just knew we weren't ready for it. I mean, we were shattered by that whole thing and it took us a long time to kind of get our heads straight. Gunner decided to come off the drums and get up front with me and kind of do that whole natural duo thing. And the reality of things were, we knew that that one thing that was going to make us stand out was that uh, it would have to be the quality of our songs. And when you start out, 
the fact is this. We noticed that the people around Los Angeles, there was always, everybody had one song, it seemed. You know, every, every band that was out had one tune, and then the rest of it was just crap. You had to wait through it until the final song before you go, oh, that, that's kind of good, you know? I mean, that's just for the most part. I'm saying there were other, there were exceptions, but for the most part, that was the norm. And I think it was true across the country, uh, is that writing a song and having a hit song, look, we, we're all about writing hits. I mean, I know the craft of songwriting, uh, but I, I learned it. I had a, uh, it really started with uh, the record deal question that I'm getting to is it started with a producer friend of ours named John Boylan. And John Boylan was famous for bands like Boston, Till Tuesday. Uh, he produced Charlie Daniels, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. I mean, he's like a producer's producer. And um, he was almost like an uncle. And I remember Gunner and I brought some songs over to him once just to listen to, you know, hey, we're going to get this guy's opinion. And he sat us down and had, I think, a, a life-defining conversation about, hey, you know, really, all that stuff is great. You know, the, the gear that you play, um, how, you know, how you guys present yourself. But he said, if you don't have a hit song, then you're done. You're done before you start. And he said, so I would suggest you learn how to write. And he actually made the suggestion of calling music publishers and trying to sit down with them to find somebody to co-write with so we could learn the craft of songwriting. And that kind of started us on the journey. I mean, here's the deal. When you're a baby band, no professional songwriter. I mean, Diane Warren is not going to give you her top shelf song to have a hit with. You know, she's saving that for Aerosmith. So you have one responsibility, and that is if you, if you can't find them, you got to learn them, learn how to write them. And that's what Gunnar and I did. It took years of going every, I mean, we went to Australia and wrote with some guys in the Little River Band. They wound up cutting one of our songs and, you know, that's kind of like Australia's Eagles, which is great. Learn from them. We went to England and wrote with Russ Ballard from Argent, who wrote some of my favorite songs. And, you know, along the way, and this is before the record deal. And uh, we had we had certain development deals. Guy and I went to New York with some demos. We did a, with a, a producer friend of mine named Jack Ponte, who lives in New Jersey. And this is back when Bon Jovi's Slippery was huge and all that. And we went to, to New York City with those demos and got turned down by every label in town and then restarted again and started writing more songs. I mean, it was an, it was an odyssey. So by, by the time we got back to uh, Los Angeles and trying to get a deal with Geffen Records, because that was, in our opinion, the echelon of, of what was happening. They had three A&R guys that were all superstars, John Kalodner, Tom Zutat, and uh, Gersh. And uh, we, you know, Guns N' Roses was there, Aerosmith was there, all this kind of stuff. And John Kalodner saw something in us that was very raw. I think, you know, he loved the the kitschy factor of the sons of thing. But at the time, nobody would take pictures with us in case it failed. You know, it was, they, they considered it could be a high-profile failing. Um, and we didn't really get the nod at that label and get our deal until Gunnar and I, after two years of managers saying, hey, don't screw it up, we're negotiating all that stuff. Gunnar and I were down to $17 in our joint bank account living off McDonald's and had written uh, a bunch of songs that Kalodner at least gave us a little budget to demo on an 8-track. Uh, but when we wrote Love and Affection, we had nothing to lose at that point. Literally, we were desperate. And we went to his office, which you, did, you didn't do unannounced, and uh, kind of pushed past his secretary, who we were friends with, and went into John's 
office and say, you're going to sit down and listen to this. And he said, I've got a busy day, so John, you're going to listen to this. Just shut up. And we, we played Love and Affection. And it was funny. He just he sat there quietly, nodding his head. And when it was done, he looked up at us in that funny voice of his and said, I've been waiting for you guys to kick my ass for two years, and that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see that you wouldn't listen to anybody and that you would fight for this, and that's the best song you've ever written. And uh, that's all I need. And he actually, in front of us, picked up the phone and called Business Affairs and made it go through. Now, I also will say that we started loving the, 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 sorry, the After the Rain record twice. We started with some producers named Dwayne Barron and John Cordell that had produced Poison, and they completely crapped the bed. So we had to start all over again. We were dropped from Geffen for two days until we reorganized and then got back in the studio with a co-writer friend of ours, Mark Tanner, who was a nobody at the time. And uh, uh, they, they insisted on us working with a, a great engineer, which made sense. So we picked David Thoner, who had done Missing You for John Waite. And, um, you know, the, the only success Gunnar and I had right before then was six months earlier, we had a, a modest splash with a song that we wrote for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and went under the name of Power Tools called Two Beds Two Are Better Than One, which became the title cut. And we uh, recorded that on an eight track with Dweezil Zappa playing guitar. And they wouldn't let us call it Nelson because our record hadn't come out yet. So um, you know, somebody asked me this yesterday too, and I know I'm talking like I've had eight cups of coffee, but I want to get this all in there, that um, we, uh, we actually didn't get the nod from the record company. There were some other bands that got the push and got the money. Um, Geffen actually never paid a dime for us to do tour, you know, for tour support. We actually used um, our own money selling T-shirts to pay for it, and uh, it was the fans at the time that pushed pushed our success. You know, Gunnar and I went all over the country with two acoustic guitars to every radio station to prove that we weren't Milli Vanilli. Right. And uh, <laughs> you know, pe people called in, and uh, you remember MTV had something called Dial MTV, yeah, which was a call-in show from the fans, and. Uh, and they voted our, our video number one from its debut. And that's really what happened. We actually had people at our label at Geffen. We sold out of our initial pressing of the album in the first day. It took uh, more than two weeks to get them in the stores back when people had to go to stores and all that stuff. So, um, you know, we, uh, I know a lot of people say, you know, we owe it to our fans, but we really do. Uh, they, uh, they made it happen for us and pretty, pretty awesome times. What a whirlwind that you know, from that point on. Yeah. Now what, when you, when you, uh, what, do you remember the first time you heard that song on the radio? Cause that song went to number one and everyone knew that yeah. song. Do you remember the first, what, when did you first time you heard that song? I remember the exact moment. Absolutely. Uh, Gunnar and I had been at a convention, a radio convention called the Bobby Poe convention. Now for people who don't know how it works, they release singles, a lot of them, and most of them never get added to playlists on radio stations. It's the air's mighty thin up there. And there are three different, back then there were three different types of stations, P3, 2, and 1. One would be something like uh, Z100 in New York or KISS FM in LA. Those are the pop stations that have the most wattage and the most people listen to. The P3s are basically your rural stations, and the P2s are a little bit in the bigger markets, but that's how it works. So Gunnar and I basically had been around for a couple of months with our guitars, as I mentioned, Geffen wasn't really doing anything other than, you know, making us prove ourselves with a grassroots thing of driving around and, and playing songs. So they have these big radio conventions, one of which the biggest is the Bobby Poe radio convention, and that's outside of Virginia, if I remember correctly. And 
uh, we went there. Geffen didn't want to pay for a, a hotel suite where everybody, all the programmers stay and schmooze and get drunk and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they, they let us, though. They, they paid for a room for Gunnar and I to hang there and try to meet programmers and schmooze our record before it came out. And we brought our guitars and set them up at the hotel lobby elevator because we knew everybody was going to have to come and go from the bar up to their hotel room to throw up. So we, uh, <laughs> we played our music and, and schmoozed and talked to these radio programmers. And I remember we there for two days. And on our way out, we, uh, we were driving. And I think we were right outside of Alexandria. And I forgot what station we were listening to. I don't remember the exact station, but I remember the jock comes on. And he said, hey, everybody, this is such and such. And uh, I just met these two really cool guys at the radio convention down the street. And they have a record that's not going to be out for another couple of weeks. But you know what? They gave me a promo copy, and I'm debuting it right here. Here's Nelson with Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection. And when it came on the station, man, I still, I got to be honest with you, that feeling never stops of hearing that your song that you know you remember the dog with gas in that room when you wrote that lick with your brother with a micro cassette it just flashes like your life flashes before your eyes and it's coming out of the speakers sounding like you know like heaven it's just amazing there's nothing like that and um that first time and we, we were we were just jumping all over the car we had to pull over it was just crazy and had, i really honestly we thought that we had something we thought we had something kind of special and a little bit different we really didn't have any idea that it was going to explode the way that it did that quickly, though. You know, um, we worked along. It was like the world's longest overnight success, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny because, you know, you were young guys and people probably thought, oh, they just came out of nowhere. But you were busting your ass yeah. since you were 12 years old. And, you know, you weren't getting the support that other bands would get. So it makes the victory that much better. Now, what was it like when it starts just blowing up? Like, you know, you, you heard it on the, on the radio uh, coming in, in Virginia. And then all of a sudden, I mean, do you do you pay attention to see it starts climbing the charts? Like, at what point does someone say, hey, you know, you're, you're single as it num is number 100 now. Do you follow that or do you not think about that because you want to concentrate on performing? No, no, the quick answer is, of course, you follow it. You follow the charts. But, but for us, it was a little, a little bit different. It, it, it was surreal. What happened was... After that moment that I was talking about in the car, uh, we were we were called by by our manager who said, "Hey, listen, would you guys be up for hosting on MTV for a couple of days?" And we were like, at that point, whatever, yeah, sure, great, MTV, yeah, great, fantastic, whatever. We'd never hosted anything before in our lives. And I guess Daisy Fuentes, who was doing that dial-in show, was taking a vacation, and I'm sure a favor was called in or something by somebody. And Gunnar and I showed up in New York, and we did two days of hosting on uh, on uh, on that dial-in TV show. And, you know, we kind of played guitars between things. I remember the first day, we were so green, it was awful. And then we started kind of picking up, you know, it's like anything. It's like doing radio. You know, you just get better at it. And um, we were pretty comfortable by the end. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, the video went number one by call-in the first time it was it wasn't released yet by the end of the week it debuted and it debuted at number one and um i say this before we left for new york that week i went down to a, a local mall the sherman oaks galleria to go buy some underwear and socks and you know here's a couple of long-haired guys gunner and i are just kind of going in there and grabbing what we need nobody nobody's looking at us or people looking at us sideways and you know not a big deal and we came back from that little stint to New York, and we had a, 
a promotional in-store record signing. If you ever saw the movie, this is Spinal Tap. It's where Artie Fufkin set everything up, and you know the Spinal Tap guys are there, and nobody shows up. So we're thinking, you know, it's gonna, you know, as far as the promo thing, and and uh, you know, we we drove down the street, literally. It was, it was it was a couple of blocks away from where we lived in the valley there, and. Uh, I remember going to this this mall. I used to skateboard there when I was a kid. I'd just been there for socks and underwear. And we got to the loading dock behind the mall, and the record company guy was there, and he looked white as a sheet. And the guy from the Sam Goody or whatever radio station, he's like terrified. I said, "What's going on?" You know, the band was there, and we're and the guy says, "You have no idea what you're about to walk into. I'm scared for my life. They're gonna rip. They're gonna rip you to pieces." I said, "Who's they?" And he goes, "The girls." And I went, "I'm laughing, thinking, you know, it's like, you know." you know a couple of you know rather large women that have cats at home that are just you know right you know it's like whatever and they said no you don't understand and i said yeah okay fine so gunner and i get in the elevator with the band and we're saying hi to the guys and uh, we go up the, the elevator and we're just talking a little bit of chit chat no big deal okay let's get this over with and we'll be home within you know it's right up the street guys you can come over we'll have some pizza man it'll be over in about half an hour whatever big deal the, the elevator doors opened and the elevator went straight up into the store so we could see, you know, the store and the mall beyond it. And when I'm saying that a jet engine hit us when the doors went, I mean, it was like, <laughs> like a, a Beatles thing. It was insane. Like Gunnar and I, I remember we didn't move because we were just stunned. And we walked out and the place went berserk. There were three levels of the shopping mall completely filled with teenage girls. And, um, you know, we're laughing, everybody's high-fiving and stuff like that. And then it started to get a little scary, you know, because Gunnar and I, are, we're personable guys, and I want to take pictures and shake hands and whatever. I mean, we still do two and three hours after every show we play to meet everybody. You know, it's just how we are. But this was kind of a different time because the girls started realizing there's no way we're going to get to to everybody. Uh, and it's not like we were going anywhere, but they thought we were. And they started to get uh, hurt. And the cops came and closed it down. So our very first record in-store was shut down by the police. And on the way down the elevator, we're laughing and saying, well, shit's different. <laughs> our life is different now. You know, we're, this, is, this is a different world. And uh, it basically remained that way for 14 months. You know, kind of it's funny. People can't comprehend that because they haven't lived it. But it, did it bother you because you probably pretty much lost your privacy? Because you're two twins, you're blonde hair, good-looking guys, you know, you're, you're probably hanging out together. What was it like trying to acclimate to your private life after you started getting that success? And I always tell people, they don't remember MTV, man. Once your video was on, everybody knew who you were. And it was crazy. What was it like that you tried to, to acclimate to normal life when you started getting bigger? Well, it's really, that's a really good point. MTV was the world's biggest radio station, bar none. And for the people that didn't grow up with it, it was on in the background 24-7. We lived by it. Everybody did. It was one of the, if you're into music, you watched MTV no matter what was on, you know? And in in our era, you know, it was, you know, we were the rock band amongst MC Hammer, you know, and uh, CNC Music Factory, Mariah Carey, all that kind of stuff. But uh, TLC, you know, there was pop and R&B playing alongside rock stuff as well. It was all, if you just love music, that's what it was. So you're right, overnight we became immensely famous, like cover of People magazine famous. And it was awesome, I'm going to be really, really honest with you. I mean, look, at first I had all of my, you know, morals in my head intact, you know. I remember 
being the idiot that was at a restaurant in Hollywood once and the penthouse pet of the year came up to me and said she wanted me to go home with her. And I said something stupid like, <laughs> you know, no, thank you. You wouldn't have given a crap about me last week when I wasn't on television. And she just kind of like looked at me and shrugged her shoulders and walked away. And everybody in the band looked at me and went, what the <laughs> hell is wrong with you? And uh, let's just say that that, <laughs> that didn't last very long. Okay. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, we had an awful lot of fun in an era of you could have fun before cell phones and everybody had a good time. There was none of this weird you know, cancel culture crap that's going on. I mean, look, everybody's patron saint was David Lee Roth. It was a whole, you know, I feel so bad for kids now, man. They, they really did miss a, a, a different time, you know? And I'm not saying that we were just a bunch of idiots. We were completely, you know, about our music and, and our path and what we were doing. And our band, I can honestly say for a time, was the best rock band in the world. We had better players than anybody did. And even the play, even the haters, when they came to see a show, I had to say, yeah, I just did not expect that. And, you know, so that was cool about it. But, but to say, what was it like? Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. I would sign up for it all over again, even though I came home millions of dollars in debt, you know, all the normal rock and roll stuff that happens. Everybody made money, but us, that type of thing. But the experience that I had was priceless. The only time it got scary was the fact that Gunner and I were so famous for at a certain point that we couldn't go out places together anymore. You know, we had grown up together. We were compadres, the whole thing. Gunner actually had a harder time on the road with it than I did. He actually started to freak out, and, and it was good having a brother there that could talk him off the ledge a little bit. But when you have the entire world trying to take a piece of you, and you know that people are stealing from you, and you know that you're along for this ride until it ends, for a while there, man, I'll be honest with you, about a year, a little over a year into it, I started getting scared that it was going to be like that forever. I'm here to tell you, it, it, you know, you stop doing what you're doing for long enough and the world moves on quickly. But, you know, it's funny, you're talking uh, for, to me from New Jersey, right, where you are. And there's a place there in uh, called Tom's River, New Jersey, and I, I hung in there for, for a long time. You know, I have a lot of New Jersey in my spirit. My family's from New Jersey, too. So I remember my friend Jack, a songwriter, Jack Pawnee, thought that it was a great idea to hang out with me at the Ocean County Mall at the height of this. And Ocean County Mall's right there in Tom's River, and he took me inside the mall, and he said, look, we're going to play a little game. I want to see how long it takes before a riot happens. And he took, he took me in, in the mall, and this is just me now, not Gunner, too. Within five minutes, we had gotten around the mall, and I got mobbed, and I saw my friend Jack laughing his ass off over <laughs> in the corner while the cops are trying to break it up. He thought it was funny, and then I could see this look on his face change because he realized this is getting dangerous. Now it's really dangerous, and he came, and he grabbed me and pulled me out of there, and we ran to the car with people running after us. It was like hard day's night. It was hysterical, and I said, I told you, man, that's not a good idea, and um you know, it was punctuated by two weeks later, Gunner and I were on the road and we, you know, we had a day off. So we just wanted to kind of go, screw it. We're going to hang out together. And we went to where do you go? You go to the mall because you, you just want to be a person. Man, that lasted 10 seconds. It was not, it was not cool. So clearly that's times are different now, but nobody can prepare you for that. You know, you, you can talk about it. My dad was one of the, honestly, the most famous guys in the world, but you have to live it yourself. 
and I can say clearly, you know, it was the right time. I mean, we were super young. MTV was there. It was the right look for the right time. By the way, the look came around and the long hair came from us being in England where image is actually more important than the music. And we kind of, that kind of like permeated in our souls of our presentation because we had an adage that, that you got to put it all together. You know, it's not just the music. It's all of it. It's got to be all together. And, uh, Let's just say that it worked for a while. Now, when you when you, you know when you sit there and you know you did the music, and I know you wanted to grow as musicians, and then you know your one album, Imaginator, didn't get a good uh, from the record companies, didn't get a good response. What is it like when you want to grow as a musician, but a record company is saying no, you can't do that? You like it's like a little kid. No, we want you to do this. What's that like as a musician to deal with that? Well. At first, it's you know, completely soul-crushing. I mean, I'll say this. Like you just said, uh, well, it, it didn't get a good response, or it didn't get... The, the, the reason why Imaginator, honestly, didn't get a good response, the, the quick answer is it wasn't After the Rain, Volume 2. But the reality of it was, Gunnar and I had been through everything we're talking about, and mostly the fact that we've always struggled with, with the media in the sense that I found out my father was dead on television. Actually, I was on, it was radio for me, it was television for Gunner. Um, and I was supposed to be on that plane. So, uh, you know, the, the same media that built up our family and then spent, you know, when our dad died, spent three weeks, you know, humiliating the family and everybody, saying that freebasing caused his plane crash. And then when they proved that it didn't, uh, of course, it wound up on page 87 on a Wednesday edition. You know, nobody ever said, hey, I'm sorry. And all, we still live with that. And, and so... When Gunner and I started happening, you know, MTV was great and all that stuff, but, but also we had never done an interview for a teen magazine like Tiger Beat, Teen Beat, whatever, you know, and people that were taking our pictures, the photographers back then were the best rock photographers ever, you know, like Niels Lozow and people like that. But everybody started selling our photos and kiping interviews from other publications and posting them in every, you know, teen magazine there was. Now, it was a very easy way to promote us, uh, and it sold a lot of records back then, but it really did us a disservice as far as our ability to continue and having longevity, you know? It's like it's like being David Cassidy. It's really tough to continue that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, our dad lived through that. You know, he had to reinvent himself and stuff like that. So I'm not saying that we made a, an artistic choice to do something different, what came out of us as songwriters after that entire experience and being remarkably, you know, for there was clearly a backlash and being as big as it happened, we also became the poster children for an era un unfairly, I think. But I understand there was a lot to deal with as far as our image was concerned. But, um, you know, it, it's like it's not like we didn't have our haters, too. And I don't mind that. I mean, that's my punk rocker in me. It's like I want to polarize. And we did for whatever reason. You know, it, it was polarizing. But we wrote, you know, we came up with the idea for Imaginator. And the concept for Imaginator was that the media brainwashes people. And here we are 30 years later. And was I right or was I wrong? All I'm saying is a guy that lived through it and, and had to experience things very personally. I mean, I not to get dark, but I've been in meetings in Hollywood before with one of the five guys that ran entertainment like really runs entertainment that picked up the phone in front of me and said i want you to watch me make a phone call and he destroyed a person on the phone literally ended his his career forever 
and then turned to me and said, that's how Hollywood really works, and if you ever tell anybody I made that call, I'll deny it, and then walked out of the office. So, you know, it's not all fun and games. I mean, that was kind of one of those, wow. So it's not just about may the best song win, like I always thought. It's like there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, but that's what Imaginator was about. So I don't care if it sold five copies. They wouldn't release it on Geffen. They made us go back in the the studio and, and basically held up our career for five years while another little band on our label, Nirvana, hit. And, um, you know, that changed too. You know, if anybody has any common sense, can see that what was happening around that time, MTV was what it was, and the music was happening that was on it. And then overnight, it was either hip-hop or grunge. Like, literally overnight. The entire station changed. It was like somebody, it's like when a radio station sells to, you know, uh, a Mexican conglomerate and all of a sudden starts doing Spanish music. That's basically what happened overnight. It wasn't an organic, hey, musical styles have changed. And I'm, I love Nirvana. I think it was great. And I understood that it needed to happen. There was a lot of really bad stuff. But that said, it wasn't exactly organic. And I, it was, again, kind of proving my point that it's kind of like you're going to listen to and like whatever they tell you to like, you know? And um, that's actually what that album was about. So, I'm glad you brought that up because the first thing that I did after I formed a, an independent label called Stone Canyon because of the fact that they wouldn't release that record was release Imaginator. And it's probably one of the, you know, I did a, people don't know this, we're going to actually re-release the album because I actually had Henry Rollins from Black Flag do a, a monologue. He did a spoken word performance on that album. And, you know, Nelson and Henry Rollins, really? <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's a mind, you know, you know what I want to say. But it was because I ran into him. I went to one of his spoken word concerts and he slagged my band, not knowing I was in the crowd. And I went backstage and and he said, what are you doing here? And I told him, well, I think we're pretty much victims of the same situation. He said, how do you figure? And, you know, Henry's, first of all, a brilliant guy. Nothing but I love the guy. I love everything he's done. And I said, well, Henry, when you... Uh, when you see me, you know, you think 8x10 glossy on the cover of Tiger Beat magazine, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, when people see you, they see a guy with tattoos on his neck looking like a guy they let out of prison early. You know, they, they cross the street and walk the other way. He said, so what do you have to say about that? I said, well, I think we're both victims of the same thing. You know, what's underneath is a whole lot more than what people see. And he said, wow, I never really thought about that. What do you want to do? I said, well, one day let's work together. And I remember I called him up and and he came over and he did a great job. And at the very last minute, his record company wouldn't allow him to put it on the record. But now times have changed. So that was the only thing that I wanted to change on that album because he said it so well. And here, what's really weird is it's so prophetic because I know everybody's talking about a lot of stuff. And here we are 30 years later, everybody is getting so divided. I mean, you can feel it. It's, it's palpable out there because there are people that want us to be divided. And I play music to bring people together. The irony here is I have no idea when Gunnar and I are gonna get a chance to actually be in a big venue and bring people together again, you know? Yeah, and so, uh, I was gonna say, how do, how do you deal with that? Like, you know, I've talked to a lot of musicians who they can't tour, and you know, it, it's something that, that's, that's what you love. I mean, you love performing the music, but just getting in front of the crowd. How, does, how do you deal with that on a daily basis, you sit there and go, man, I can't wait till you know they make the they, they 
get to go go to back to live entertainment. How do you deal with that? Because you know you, it's what you love doing. The reality of it is, we're all kind of on a wait and see. You know, how everybody says that that crap. You know, at first, oh, we're all in this. You know, was it? Uh, we're all alone together. All that kind of stuff. Well, musicians are different because we minister. That's what we do. And it's great to do a Zoom thing, and it's great to play like on Usos. What was it? The, the '80s thing that we just did. That's cool and stuff. I mean, that's nice, but it's not live. It's not. You're not getting that vibe. You're not getting that feeling. So we have to wait and see what happens and how it plays out. Look, I I, I have my own beliefs. I personally think it's going to shake out. But Gunner and I have pretty much figured that it's going to be at least the first quarter of next year before we can actually kind of feel like things are like people are learning how to deal with all of this stuff. Um, you know, who knows? Let's see if you know in November COVID nineteen just disappears. I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that we were all locked up for an awfully long period of time, and, and then that just kind of like, why, oh, I guess it's okay not to be in the house anymore. Oh, no, 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 we got to go back in the house. Uh, it's like, what's going on with this? It's just, you kind of, you have to have common sense. It's like the punk rocker in me again is kind of going, well, just somebody tell us the truth. And the musicians out there, they tell the truth when they play live and that's what they're missing is their ability to have a voice I know I am and even if I'm playing a pop song or doing a retrospective or you know Gunnar and I are working on new music where you know here's the good news in the meantime I think everybody no matter the musicians that are waiting to go and play live or just anybody at home you know this has given us a little bit of forced time away from the treadmill of just trying to make the bills at the end of the month you know, obviously everybody's concerned about finances and health, and there's a lot of fear. And um, I, I know for me personally, I feel the most free when I'm on stage and I'm doing what I do. And love it or hate it, it's real. And um, and I'm expressing myself, whatever. But there is a psychological aspect to being locked up for so long and, and to be silenced. And I mean, I think that's why when I see people walking around with masks on their face, why it pisses me off so much, uh, just from a visual aspect, because it's, you know, you got to do what you got to do, depending on where you live and all that stuff. And I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I just think that it's a crime to not, you know, you can't, you can't interact with people. You don't even know what their expressions are. You know, it's like, it's, it's creepy to me, clearly. And I got a five-year-old kid that I'm raising in this and I'm trying to navigate what that's like and and for me as a as a communicator and for musicians out there that communicate and do it largely you know by the live medium and look we had just come to the realization all of us that you know it wasn't about record sales anymore now it's about live and then they took that from us so i think the people that are going to to survive this are really going to prove they're the true survivors you know and i think that's one thing you can say about gunner and myself is is that we are survivors you know we've we've grown up learning how to pivot you know there's one thing that's really good about being you know one of those uh, one of those acts that that symbolizes an era that was largely maligned by the era that followed it was that we learned how to pivot and continue making our music even if it wasn't on as big of a stage as it was before we never stopped and I think um, I think I don't know we've done I think 16 albums since after the rain and um, we still have you know, people that come to see us play. And, and if, you know, there are easier ways, honestly, to make a living. 
And I think what you'll see about most musicians is that they'll fight for their ability to communicate. And now they're going to fight for their ability to communicate live. It's, um, we're all taking a little bit of a break because we needed it. I'll be honest with you. It, it was kind of humbling when my five-year-old came to me and, you know, grabbed my leg last week and looked up at me and said, Pop, I like it that you're not working now because when you play concerts, I never, I never see you. And in my world, man, that reminds me of me. You know, right. talk about cats in the cradle. So it was a good thing. You know, and the same day that he said that, my friend Russ from Steel Panther called me and said, hey, man, you want to work on our next record with me? I'm like, yeah, of course. I sang on the first two Steel Panther records, which was fun. But, um, you know, we still have friends in the... In the in uh in other bands and other projects that uh you know one thing i have to say is that i think the reason why people love music and their musicians so much is because you know we're we are we you know forget about a virus we've all been in this together you know we all we all love music and it's bigger than we are and it's the soundtrack to our lives so we're gonna fight and make it happen we'll 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 all survive this now now you know just i want to ask you real quick um you said you you, because you've been in the music business for a long time you said you and your brother are writing new songs how has your songwriting style i mean your your content how has it matured with you wow uh again a, a, a big question um I will say that there was one point in time a couple of years ago uh, where I I actually uh, couldn't make the music that I wanted to with uh, with my brother. I mean, he just wasn't thinking the same way I was. So I started writing some songs alone, and I took them to Gunner, and he said, look, that's just not going to fit with what we do, you know? And he kind of like jokingly said, start another band. So I did. And um, I put together a three-piece heavy rock trio called Red 37. And um, we went into a very famous studio in L.A. called Sound City that Dave Grohl made an album about. And we recorded an album in in six days, mixed. And it's probably one of my my favorite things I've ever done. But as a songwriter, I could see that it it really wouldn't have worked with Gunner, the songs that I wrote with that project, you know, Um, a little bit more a little bit darker, a little bit more deep poetry, a little bit, you know, just wasn't the same thing. And I have to say that my, my writing's matured just in the sense that, you know, I've written, I've written great country songs. I've written really heavy songs. I've, uh, you know, all those kind of things. I'm a really big fan of challenging myself to try different styles and see if I can excel at them. So, you know, it's kind of like this. I equate songwriting kind of like with a, a Bruce Lee philosophy. When Bruce Lee used to teach martial arts, you know, he said, when you start out with martial arts, a kick is just a kick and a punch is just a punch. And then you spend decades analyzing that kick and that punch and the mechanics of it and practicing and practicing and practicing. And then when you're a master, a kick is just a kick and a punch is just a punch. It's kind of the same thing with songwriting, you know? When you start with songwriting, you don't know enough about it, so you just let it happen. And it's natural. And then you analyze it, you agonize over it, whatever. And at this point in my life as a songwriter, you know, I kind of get out of the song's way and let it kind of just happen. And uh, I've noticed that the best things that I've written uh, in my life, but also recently, come very quickly. You know, like I, the best songs can honestly be written within 10 minutes. And if you agonize over it over days and weeks or whatever, you probably should, you know, maybe start again. 
you know, put that put that one away and start a new song. Now, I'm going to ask you your website. People, the website is MatthewMGunnerNelson.com. Are you the older one? Because it always says Matthew and Gunner. How did how did you guys come to that decision that it'd be Matthew and Gunner? Because alphabetically, Gunner is before Matthew. Uh, I won the fight. <laughs> yeah, we just we just we just decided to fight it out, and I beat the shit out. No, I, 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 I basically um yeah, I pulled rank on that one. You know, I'm the oldest son, so that's why it's gonna work. And uh, fair, you know, that my name goes first. Yeah, you have to admit. Come on, it's like. Gunner, what a cool name. What's your name? Matthew. Well, I don't understand. He's got this really cool rock star name, and you're like, you know, first book, New Testament. I mean, that's pretty old school and classic. I, I don't get that. It's like, well, I guess it's like the two of us. You know, we're 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 yin yang. He's definitely the yang. <laughs> okay, before we go, before we go, uh, tell me about cameo. I know you're doing cameo. Tell me about that because I think cameo is such a cool. It's so cool because you know. Luckily for me, I get to interview people like you. I interview actors, writers, you know. I meet them. If, if you know, I used to do the show in LA, so I meet them in studio. So for me, sure. you get used to it. But for, you know, like my wife, you know, when we first started dating, she would visit me in LA and I would get I would get people in the studio that I knew she liked. Like I had Terry Nunn from Berlin. And it blows oh, them yeah. away. It blows them away. Cameo is so great like that. What made you decide to do cameo and what can people expect from you when they get your cameo? I'll get to that in a second. First of all, I got to pause. Everybody, Terry Nunn. Wow. Okay, I like Terry Nunn too. Anyways, okay, so back to the ethical question. What they can get from Cameo. Um, I actually I actually care about the Cameos I do. I mean, I take time to kind of analyze what somebody's requested. Some of them are really silly. Uh, I remember when we started doing these Cameo things, Gunnar and I talked about it, and it was, it was supposed to be just like a, hey, how you doing? Hope you're having a good day kind of thing that would, would come to you, a request or whatever. And, of course, I, I can't just do that because I'm clearly not very well-spoken. So I would just grab my guitar and I'd play a little for people. And then people started requesting songs. And now I've gotten to a point where people are requesting the most – I mean, here's some of the craziest requests I've gotten uh, beyond songs that I did on albums that didn't sell very much that are like song number six on our fourth album – and it becomes, it's somebody's favorite song, so I actually have to go look up my own lyrics and kind of practice <laughs> it for, for a little while before I do that cameo. I had somebody ask me to do my version of the Drifter song, Up on the Roof. I mean, is that random? <laughs> but it, it actually was, but it, it turned out awesome. It was really fun to do it. And, you know, then I had a really serious one where for Father's Day, it was uh, a mom of some 17-year-old kid, this guy that had lost his father to cancer three years you know, sorry, three months earlier, and wanted me to kind of talk to their son about what it's like to lose their dad. And I was like, man, that's as heavy as it gets. And I wound up being on that cameo for 20 minutes. I played two songs, talked a little bit, you know, it was be like it was if I was hanging out with a nephew fishing or something like that. So, you know, for me, I don't really know what I can say except for this is as close as I get to kind of, you know, when we meet people backstage or, or I'll just have an interaction with anybody out. It, it, you know, I'm a people person. And that's what I miss about this whole world now is that interaction we're talking about is I, I miss people a lot. So, you know, I have to say with Cameo, I, I'm not one of those guys that will just kind of go, hey, how you doing? Good to talk to you. Bye. You know, like so many of them are. You know, I actually I actually care about them. And I'm, I'm really happy to have that platform 
Uh, I have so many people asking if Gunnar and I would do them together, and and we will. Right now, we're just doing them individually, and they're they're relatively inexpensive because the way I look at it is that anybody's going to pay any money right now. It's an honor because nobody's making any money. So I want to kind of you know not be tone deaf about that. Eventually, Gunnar and I are going to do them together, but um, you know I just I love the platform and and you know all the time I get people just out of nowhere. I just go blip. Cameo comes in and I'll read it. And it's like man. That's a cool little mini challenge. I love that. So I want to thank everybody for, for hitting me up. It's fun. That's awesome. And your cameo is uh, bass and VOX, right? Yeah, bass and Vox. Bass yeah. like the guitar, N is in you know my last name, and Vox like vocals. I don't know where I came up with it, but I should probably do something more simple. But bass and Vox, yep. I'm uh, just, just know that I'm not Gunner. I'm but Matthew, I'm the other one. I'm just laughing because when you said the name, because he's the Gunner Nelson, and you're, he's probably doing it just to piss you off because you... He took control. Instead of just Gunner, he's like, I'm the uh, Gunner. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. You know, the, the truth is, Gunner and I, uh, we fought the wars together, and it's really been great being his twin brother because we really do complement each other. And um, it's nice to have have a best friend that understands everything that you've been through. And, you know, I don't care who you are. If you have a business with your family, it's hard. If you have a family, it's hard. But But kind of... You know, running the gauntlet with with your twin brother has been a lot of fun. I mean, I I can tell you a couple of twin brother acts that were famous that didn't work out and hate each other now, and we're fortunate that doesn't that hasn't happened. You well, know, that's awesome, Matthew. I want to thank you for uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, as I said, it was uh, it's so amazing. And when I think about it, it's because um, you guys made a joke about the you look like bikini miles or something at like the '80s thing. And and I, I, I say, we look like hot Swedish chicks, right? Because well, I, I we, used to, we, we used to back then, yeah. Because I used to do stand up. I was stand up from eighty eight to ninety five, and I remember I did a joke. I said, "Oh, I saw these two hot blondes. I bought them a drink, and it was Nelson." And people loved uh-huh. it because everyone knew you. But uh, I want to thank you now. Now, are you on Twitter? <laughs> are you on Twitter? I know it's Matthew and Gunnar Nelson is your uh, website. Basin Vox right. is your cameo. Are you on Twitter or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, we go to our website because the whole uh, the whole profile is all there if you want to find us. But if you just you know the good news is if you just put our names in, we pop up. You know, we're famous enough to where you kind of can't miss us. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you. So people, go check out Nelson. Go listen to their old albums. Go listen to you know their their all, everything. Listen, just listen to them. Watch their videos. So follow them. Look them up. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Uh, CooperTalk.net. You can look me up. I have 801 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.